thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Naked Reflections, brought to you from the Wolf Institute. I'm Ed Kessler, and each week I'll be taking an in-depth look at the stories reported by our friends over at the Naked Scientists. What does the latest scientific stuff mean for the rest of us? Stay with us and find out. Most of us feel lonely some of the time, and some of us feel lonely most of the time. But to be alone is not necessarily to be lonely, and Being part of a crowd can feel very lonely indeed. It's a tricky thing to pin down loneliness, not least for the people who probably study it most, sociologists and psychologists. Here's the Cambridge neuroscientist Isabel Cochrane speaking on The Naked Scientists. In order to try to measure loneliness distinctly from social isolation, many studies use standardised questionnaires such as the UCLA loneliness scale. In this way, it has been found that the subjective state of loneliness in itself has a much bigger impact on a person's health than any other element of their social network, including number and frequency of social contacts and the presence of close relationships. Loneliness is our subject this week. And languishing at home, waiting to discuss it, are Tamsin Ford, Professor of Child and Adolescent Psychiatry at the University of Cambridge. Tamsin is recently appointed member of the Academy of Medical Scientists. And our very own Dr. Kitty alone, researcher at the Wolf Institute and a regular panellist on Naked Reflections. And Kitty is a specialist in applied social psychology and interested in moral cognition and extremism. Welcome both. Well, we can't but start to think about loneliness in terms of COVID-19, the pandemic and this thing called social isolation. So what does the lockdown mean for loneliness? Tamsin. Well, I think, um, first of all, we should start with definitions. I'm an epidemiologist by research background, and we spend a lot of time thinking about just what it is we're trying to measure. And loneliness is quite a tricky concept um, in that you summed it up very nicely in your introduction. It's not necessarily about being physically alone. Um, and there was a recent study in um, Latin America in, in several different countries of children and young people. And what they showed was um, if you ask about loneliness, you get about 10% of um, young people who say they're very lonely. 
but quite a proportion of them will say I, that they have a best friend. So it's not it's the perception of feeling alone and isolated more than actually being alone and isolated, which for some people is pleasurable. It is associated with um, poor mental health, but again, it's not an inevitable consequence. And I guess coming back to um, what you um, raised in the introduction, given social distancing, and for a lot of people that means social isolation, we are worried as um, mental health scientists and practitioners about the impact that that will be having on all our population's mental health, not just children and young people, of course. And Kitty, is that something that uh, that worries you too? Um, well, I think during lockdown, I mean, it's certainly on the government's radar. So um, on the 22nd of April, for example, the culture secretary launched um, a new campaign to tackle loneliness and they've put um, sort of a charity fund of around £750 million into it. So it's clearly something that is going to be on a lot of people's radar, especially at the moment. Um, it's called Let's Talk Loneliness. And I think the main message of this campaign is really the idea of trying to get across that staying at home does not necessarily lead to loneliness, that there is an idea that you should still be connected and engaged with your social relations with other people, even though you're isolated. So it's, it's an interesting dichotomy, like you're physically isolated, but you still need to engage with other people. It, it sounds, Tamsin, like it's a very subjective feeling, the feeling of loneliness. It's just what I perceive. Or is it is it more than that? Well, that's a really interesting point because it is quite difficult to measure. And I think if you asked um, young people, you might not get the same result as if you asked their parents or teachers about who appears to be isolated. But actually, the feeling of loneliness was has been recognised for a long time as a risk factor for mental health. For, so, for example, at, at University College London, they have a large network which is all of focused on loneliness and the idea is they're stimulating research into how loneliness relates to mental health um so you know the fact that it is an internal perception and like many of them can fluctuate over time does make it rather difficult to sort of pin down as a definition and also to measure in a way that's that's accurate i have to say and i'm sure that you will agree that that um, applies to quite a lot of mental health and, and social constructs. So it's not an unusual problem. I, I'm just going to chime in and say, yes, measuring something like loneliness is, a, is very hard for psychologists and psychiatrists. And we generally sort of rely on the UCLA loneliness scale, which I think has had various iterations over the decades. But it's, it's not an easy task to do, that's for sure. What, what is the UCL loneliness scale? So um, the UCLA Loneliness Scale was developed in, I believe, the late 70s um, to try and sort of measure or gauge participants' subjective feelings of loneliness and social isolation. So it's gone, as I said, through various iterations. At the moment, I think it's about 20 items, but there are truncated versions that um, researchers can use if they're doing sort of, if they need a shorter version of it. Um, it's got good reliability. In 1992, this particular scale was used in 80% of empirical studies on loneliness, whereas in 2010, it sort of dropped a bit, but it's still used far more than any other scale in the field. So it's, it's you know, it's a widely used measure. Sort of looping back to the conversation about, um, you know, the government tr trying to get the message across that we need to stay socially distant, but not socially disconnected. Um, probably um, in the early years of this century, I think the Foresight Committee did a big study 
of the determinants of mental health across the lifespan and to try and come up with kind of five a day for mental health. We have five a day fruit for physical health. And one of them was connect. So, you know, this is not a new concept in terms of its its importance to mental health. We are social animals and we are designed to have social interaction. And when that goes wrong, be it bullying or conflictual relationships or abuse in its um, worst form, or for whatever reason, you're isolated and lonely, that is not good for your physical health as mental health. And you specialise, Tams, in working with young people. Um, Is there a difference there in terms of what loneliness feels like for young people than if we're older? That's a really fascinating question. I was going to say we don't know the answer, but I guess what I should more accurately say is I don't know the answer. Um, I'm not sure that anyone has studied it. Um, I think social skills are hugely important. You know, what employers need these days and what employers complain about is that young people are coming into the workplace after school or college or university and they lack those soft skills. And the way you develop social skills is by social interactions. So we learn a lot about who we are and what we can do and what our strengths and weaknesses are and how to be with people in our family relationships and then later in adolescence in our social relationships. Um, and I think we're very worried about the impact of, of lockdown on on different groups of children. So very small children will find it harder to connect via digital means and they're missing out on developing lots of social skills that would happen in nurseries and schools and playgrounds. Whereas you know, relationships in adolescence, peers become even more important than parents um, at that age. And while they might be better at connecting over social media, not everybody has access to it. Um, And again, that's another group where we worry that um, social distancing might have a particular impact. Um, However, because this is happening to everyone in the population, as opposed to previous outbreaks like MERS and SARS, where actually it was often only bits of the population that quarantined, there was more of a stigma associated with it. So perhaps it's a more normal experience and that will help quite a lot of children um, cope with it. We, we, We can but wait and see and monitor it's interesting because in the field of faith, which is more my, my personal area of, of research, there's a, 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 almost a democratisation because people cannot attend church or, or places of worship. So everybody's on the outside. Everybody's uh, participating maybe by Zoom or, or one way or another. So there's, there's, there's no longer the, the sort of uh, structure that might normally be in terms of senior figures in a church, junior figures in a church. Um, so, as you say, it would be interesting to see what the research shows in terms of loneliness. I suppose another way around the question really for you, Kitty, is the question of whether a young person who feels lonely will automatically end up being an an older person who feels lonely. I mean, what do you think? Wow, that's interesting. I mean, I guess um, some people might even claim that, well, correct me if I'm wrong, that sort of loneliness is almost like a trait. But I think research has found that one of the groups that are most affected by loneliness is the elderly. And that sort of makes... A sense because obviously as the older you get the social relationships that you have surrounding sort of family life work they disappear they go away they they die so you're left with fewer quality social relationships 
than you would have had, you know, when you were in your 30s or 40s, for example. Something I wanted to ask Tamsin, actually, is how does, when does a child know that they're alone? I think if you see a tiny newborn, provided they're fed and they're warm, you can pass them around lots of people. They have no stranger anxiety. But by the time you get to about six months, they're beginning to selectively attach to familiar figures. So you have this period of normal development from about six months to about three or four, where children will really protest and not be happy if they're separated from their key attachment figures and they're with unfamiliar people. Um, Now, that's not quite the same as loneliness, but that is the beginning of um, the development of relationships with your key caregivers, these attachment relationships become the kind of template of how you behave with other people. Um, And I I think, you know, people are more or less sociable in their nature, depending on their personality attributes, which will be partly their genetic endowment in terms of their personality, but also their social environment. So if you come from a large sibship of lots of children, a noisy house, you will probably find living alone in a bed set on your own really hard because you've never had that solitude. Whereas if you're an only child like me, I'm quite okay with that because that's kind of, I grew up and maybe that's why I'm an academic because I'm naturally a sort of quieter person and I had a lot of time on my own as a child. Well, that's given us something to think about. Let's take a pause. We're halfway through this podcast. You're listening to Naked Reflections with me, Ed Kessler, and my guests this week are Tamsin Ford and Kitty Alone. And we're discussing loneliness. It means different things to different people. Here's Robin Hewins of the Campaign to End Loneliness on the Naked Scientist podcast. So sometimes people can be lonely because they don't feel that they're having the social relationships that they want to have with their parents or children or their partners. But sometimes it's more because of not having that broader group of friendships. And so there's some big differences in terms of the kinds of things that you can do about it. The amount of research that's happening in loneliness is going up and up. But there's still a lot that we don't know. This is certainly not like something that has been intensively researched for decades and decades. But there are some practical things that we can do. So taking up Robin Hewins' suggestion, what practical things would you suggest for tackling loneliness? Well, I think it depends a little on the age of the person and the health and resources of the person. Um, I think the foresight um, instruction to connect is the bottom line. But in, in one way, shape or form, making sure that you connect, particularly if you live on your own or with very few other people, that you make some kind of human connection, be that a telephone call, be that via social media, be that by video conference or, you know, socially distanced walk in the park. Um, it's really important that you try and do that every day. Now, obviously, if you are a very small child, you can't do that it's parents need to try and create that opportunity for children to interact with others um perhaps playing social games and you know for people who feel shy of just kind of chatting to people actually doing it via an activity is a really good way to do it so 
um, joining in with singing or joining in with um, some kind of social club where there is a role and a structure can be less challenging. And that also ticks one of the other five a day, which is um, keep learning, keep learning new skills because you get a sense of achievement and, and, you know, that's that's really good. But I think making friends, chatting to people, connecting with people comes more naturally to some people and some people need to push themselves to do it. And people can get into a really nasty, vicious cycle if you tend to be someone who gets depressed or you tend to be someone who gets anxious or maybe have a severe mental health condition, is that when you start to slide into that condition, the very condition itself makes you withdraw from people. And actually, that's just when you need the the, um, the help the most. So I think what we can all do to look after each other is to look out for the absent people, look out for the people we know who might be a bit vulnerable to feeling low or might be lonely and try and connect with them to make it easier. Because, of course, it's a two-way thing. It takes two people to connect. I saw you nodding there, Kitty. Just sort of chiming in again and just echoing what Tamsin's just said. But, I mean, there's sort of quite a lot of research out there that says um, just that people who perceive social isolation or people who have subjective feelings of loneliness sort of have increased vigilance for threat and um, heightened feelings of vulnerability, which, as Tamsin was saying, means that they're less likely to go out and interact, which is just the beginning of this terribly vicious cycle, this sort of like a horrible cycle of loneliness that people get into. And I think we need to be aware that lots of sort of incidental opportunities for interaction, like the chats we all used to have in the shop or in the, in the coffee room or the kitchen at work, even if we are working and we're connecting in structured situations at work, those additional conversations are not happening because we're all working remotely. And then maybe it's up to um, managers and leaders to try and put those in. You know, can you have some kind of, you know, virtual coffee where you all sort of dial in with a cup of coffee and just have a chat and it's not all about work? Um, because I think, you know, that that's what I keep hearing from the people who are coping well is, but, you know, I miss the corridor conversations. And I have to say that I, I feel the same way. And it's interesting on the other side of social isolation is that we tend to be speaking more, though, to the people who may be doing a delivery or someone you see on the street. You know, we tend to know our neighbours a bit better uh, because we smile. We may walk around them, but we kind of smile slightly embarrassed at, at each other. So in some ways, this social isolation may result in less loneliness or at least some aspects of um, of less loneliness. Yes, yeah, so I think that's. It, it's very interesting, and I'm sure Kitty will have more to say about this than me because you it's your area of study. But I think my own anecdotal observation is that there's a whole etiquette developing about who moves on the pavement to give space to try and keep two metres apart. And to people you wouldn't normally acknowledge, really, because you don't know them in the street. I think maybe because we're walking away from each other, we kind of then feel obliged to smile or wave because it feels socially awkward. Um, but I think if it can make us all be a bit more civil and tolerant to each other, um, because as soon as you humanise somebody and you know them, um, you know, you're less likely to be 
unpleasant to them. That can only be a good thing. But I do wonder if it's a weird compensatory measure for these other chance conversations with more familiar people that we're not not having. Well, it's it's. I'm so glad you said the word compensatory because that's one of the things I really wanted to talk about. Which is, um, so studies in um, social psychology have shown that people who feel lonely and socially isolated are sort of are more likely to see human-like traits in things like pets or imaginary beings, and also God as well. So I'm sure this is something we'll come on to in more detail at some point. But um, so deep is this need for social interaction that when it's taken away from us, we have all these compensatory mechanisms that kick in. Um, and I think, you know, it's just, it's like a fascinating psychology experiment in some ways, lockdown, sort of seeing the new etiquette and the new social guidelines around how best to navigate a street you know so I was walking down Mill Road today which is very very narrow it's a very long street in Cambridge and people are just striding out into the middle of the road to try and maintain this two meter distance so it's the irony of not catching coronavirus but you actually get sort of run over by a truck you know so it's a strange a strange thing but I'm really glad you mentioned the compensatory mechanisms because that's something that I find fascinating. Kitty help me understand where God appears in all of this. There are two things I think are of interest. So um, a lot of studies have shown that um, being part of a religious congregation, religious attendance can help buffer loneliness. And this would make intuitive sense, right? Because you're sort of, you're part of this big social family-like gathering and it provides a very extended social support network. So if you are an older person, for example, whose children have moved away, if you're retired, you've lost some of the very high quality social relationships that you had maybe 10 years ago. Religious attendance in some ways sort of, um, provides the, resort, the social relationships that you're lacking. Um, what's interesting, and you mentioned it just a few minutes ago, is that that's been also taken away from people. So not only has physical interaction with people that you see at work and extended family gone, now also the religious attendance aspect has also been stripped away. People who are socially isolated and lonely and who have beliefs in a very positive and almost agreeable God, so people who view God as their best friend, if you like, when lonely, report a lot more sort of purpose in life. So what this suggests is that you have a specific belief in God. It's a very, it's a compensatory way of reducing loneliness and providing you a sense of purpose that's been taken away by the lack of other social relationships. In a way, what you're saying, Kitty, is about the individual relationship with the divine rather than the community relationship with fellow co-religionists. That's what you're really saying. Yes, that's exactly that's you said it much much better than I did. That is exactly what I meant. Yes. Well, we're, we're coming towards the end uh, of this podcast, um, but I do want to touch on this question of social media um, because there's been a lot of research done about the impact of social media on on mental health. Um, I mean, is is social media contributing to our loneliness? Is there research that shows this one way or another? The short answer is no, um, but the more complicated answer is. There has been a lot of research. Most of it is cross-sectional, where you're measuring mental health and social media use at the same time. So we don't know the temporal sequence. I mean, the only way to be sure would be to do an experiment that I hope would never get past an ethics committee, where you randomly allocated people to different amount of social media and you measured their mental health and you worked out the effect. Um, that would never be done for obvious reasons. 
Um, but if you gather data over time, you can get a stronger um, idea of the causal relationship because it could work both ways. You could have the lonely, isolated people who are therefore perhaps more likely to get depressed or, or get anxious, who spend a lot of time on social media because they don't have other relationships. And social media may be incidental or it may contribute to their deteriorating mental health, or it could work the other way around. So you have healthy people who spend a lot of time on social media and therefore their mental health deteriorates. We haven't got the longitudinal data. And I suspect it would probably be more complex than that. So I think social media can be used in a lot of different ways. And some of them are very constructive and some of them are really supportive. But some of them can be quite unpleasant. You know, people say and do things to people online and sort of pile on individuals in the most awful, awful way, in a way they just wouldn't if they were face to face. So you can have cyberbullying, you can have trolling. If you're comparing yourself and feeling like you have to project an unreal image, um, all of that, I suspect, is not good for mental health. And the research we have at the moment it's kind of beginning to point that way, but we don't know. We don't understand. You know, I couldn't sit in front of a family and say, you really need to be careful of Instagram. You know, we just don't have that level of data yet. But I think I think you're definitely along the right lines, though, Tamsin, because I was um, there was a really interesting study from uh, researchers from the University of Pittsburgh done in 2019. And they found that loneliness is linked to negative social media experiences. So you're, it's, the, it's the notion that it's the kind of interaction that you're having with social media that is impacting loneliness. So one of their findings, for example, they ran a study with undergraduates and they found that for every 10% rise in negative experience on social media, there was a 13% increase in loneliness. For positive interactions on social media, there wasn't any connection. So it seems that perhaps due to our innate sort of negativity biases, we're very much affected by negative experiences on social media. And this directly, or at least has some kind of impact on our subjective feelings of loneliness. Well, it is fascinating. And I can't leave because I want to know what the five are, Tamsin. You know, I've been thinking about... Oh, God, I hope I can remember them. (laughs) (laughs) I think it's um, keep active. So, um, you know, make sure you're doing some kind of activity. It doesn't have to be triathlons. Um, it's got to be something you enjoy, and that can be a stroll around the park. But keeping active, one connect, two, um, keep learning, three, give, four, and I can't remember the fifth one, but I'll look it up. Four out of five, not bad. Pay attention to the present mindfulness, which, as I study it, I feel rather silly for not remembering it. Ah. Well, that's the first thing you're going to look at when you get back. Well, that's all we've got time for this week. A wonderful way to end the show. Thanks to my guests, Tamsin Ford and Kitty alone. And thanks to you two for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with any thoughts, comments or reflections of your own, you can email nakedreflections at wolf.cam.ac.uk and let us know what subjects you'd like to hear more about and how you'd like us to cover them. We'd love to hear from you. In the meantime, You can find more episodes of Naked Reflections and subscribe to Naked Reflections podcast wherever you get your podcasts or at nakedscientist.com slash reflections. Do join us next time. Hold up. 
thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. The nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.